This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. The scripture reading this morning is from Luke chapter 2, verses 40 to 52. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days... They found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So this morning, I want to take a little different perspective on our passage. I think our text this morning is fascinating on so many levels. Uh, First, this is the only story we have of Jesus in the Bible where he's making choices, uh, where he's acting and where he's speaking uh, prior to becoming an adult. Second, this text is fascinating to me because it shows Jesus' own, uh, what scholars call his messianic identity, even at the age of 12. So in other words, um, I would say it this way. Uh, Jesus, at the peak of this story, he, he shows us that he is aware of the fact that he has two fathers. He, he's aware of the fact that not only is Joseph his earthly father, but he knows that he is the unique son of God. He knows he has a special connection with God the Father. He essentially knows already he's the Messiah. Also really fascinating to me is this, that the text shows us that Jesus had to grow in wisdom, and it shows us how he grew in wisdom. Verses 40 and 52, they show Jesus not only needing to grow physically and emotionally, but but they show Jesus uh, in verse 52, for example, increasing or, or literally cutting a path in wisdom. So what it tells us is that Jesus at his birth, he was not all wise, that he increased in wisdom, he increased in understanding over the years of his life. Most fascinating to me, though, is this, that the text reminds us that Jesus was a sinless and perfect 12-year-old boy. And he was living life with, and he was living life around sinners. Or I guess I would say it differently like this. This is an episode in Jesus's life where he, as a 12-year-old, lived lovingly and beautifully within a context that was fraught with temptation. So this is the perspective, actually, that I want to take on the text, this, this 12-year-old perfect boy. And I want to do justice to those other layers and angles, and I think I will, but I want to approach it this way. Uh, tempted in every way, uh, tempted in these ways, 
and tempted on the way to the cross. Okay, so first, tempted in every way. The author of Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 15, the text that was our call to worship, the author of Hebrews writes this, that Jesus in his life was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. The old King James Version read this way, he was in all points tempted as we are. The, new, the, the, the NIV, uh, the New International Version says well that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. And the point is this, every temptation you have faced, are facing, or will face, Jesus faced it, he wrestled with it, he never fell to it. Now, now of course, the author of Hebrews doesn't mean that Jesus faced uh, uh, every temptation that we've faced in terms of circumstances. He's saying that Jesus faced every temptation at its core. So, So in other words, Jesus was not tempted by the internet in any way because Al Gore had not yet invented the internet, okay? But you have to assume from Hebrews chapter four that Jesus was tempted with the sin of, of objectifying the body of another. He was tempted by the sin of using another for his own pleasure. He faced the temptation of self-gratification all without ever sinning. In my spiritual journey, when I began to understand that Jesus in his life was tempted in every way, I began to appreciate and I began to see the gospels in a whole new light. So as I was read episodes in his life in Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, I would begin to ask myself the question, what temptation was present here? How was Jesus in this story tempted in every way I've been tempted yet without sin? Or I could ask it differently. I could come to context. You see, Jesus didn't just robotically live a law-abiding, loving life. He was human. He was real. He faced every temptation. Countless times, Jesus could have chosen the path of self-centeredness, and he never did. When I think about Jesus' life captured in the Gospels this way, it makes him that much more beautiful to me. That at every fork in the road, when he was tempted with short-term gain, he always chose the short-term pain of obedience. So, for example, what temptations were likely present when Peter denied and abandoned his friend Jesus as Jesus is suffering injustice and dying? So we know that the resurrected Jesus, he he pursued Peter, he fed Peter, he forgave Peter, he reinstated Peter in the mission. But what would I have done? Gossiped, hated, hoped ill for? I can't even imagine rescuing those who have abandoned and betrayed me. Or or what temptation was present when Jesus encountered a man with dropsy in the synagogue on the Sabbath? We read it this week in CBR. There's the temptation to not care. There's the temptation to be afraid of the powerful religious leaders. There's the temptation to be a legalist and, and make the law more important than the person. But Jesus, tempted in every way, yet without sin, cared enough to piss him off and compassionately heal the man. Or what about the woman at the well, the promiscuous and flirtatious woman who engages Jesus in conversation with no one around? So Jesus is on a business trip, you might say, and nobody knows what's going on. Does Jesus move towards her with the purpose of finding life in forbidden sexual pleasure? Does he bounce his eyes and run from her, leaving her in a horrible place of captivity? Or does he, in purity, move towards her with the light and the grace and the freedom of the gospel. 
So when I began to understand in my journey that Jesus was not just an amazing teacher, he was not just an example, but he was a beautiful victor over selfishness and temptation, Jesus became all that much more beautiful to me, and the Bible came alive. Tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So I want to keep this framework in mind. I want us to think with new and fresh eyes about this story of a 12-year-old Jewish boy named Jesus. What temptations were likely present in this story? How did we and how would we respond in similar circumstances? So not just broadly speaking, he was tempted in every way, but, but specifically speaking, Jesus was tempted in these ways. I'm going to walk through the text in this point. It's going to be our longest point. Uh, stay with me. What I, what I want to do is I want to walk through it together. I want to give you as much background as I possibly can. I want to make the story as vibrant as I possibly can so that we can brainstorm these likely temptations faced by Jesus in the text. And so what I've done is I've kind of broken the narrative up into three parts, before, during, and after the exchange between Jesus and Mary in verses 48 and 49. So first, before the exchange between Jesus and Mary. In verses 41 and 42, Luke provides uh, the setting for the entire story. Jesus, at age 12, goes with his parents on this three-day journey to Jerusalem for Passover. And so it's impossible to say with certainty. Luke seems to indicate in the text that this was Jesus's first time in the big city. Regardless of whether or not he had been there before, this trip was a big trip for Jesus. At age 13, which is the next year in Jesus's life, Jewish boys would be considered adults. They would become full-fledged members of the synagogue. They'd be expected to obey the law. They'd be held accountable to the entirety of the law. And in light of this huge reality at age 13, at age 12, boys were expected to go to the Passover feast and they were expected to stay with their dad the entire seven to eight days in and around the temple. They would hear the story of God's people. They would learn about what was happening at the temple. They they would watch the sacrifices. They would learn the law. If Jesus had gone to the Passover prior to this year, he would have certainly stayed with his mom and with the other women and with the younger children, and he would have enjoyed a vacation of sorts. But this year, Jesus was part of a seven to eight day Sunday school class with his dad. He was being prepared to step in to manhood. In verses 43 to 45, Luke describes this scary and trying scene, okay? After the full number of the days of the Passover feast, Jesus' immediate family began the downhill journey uh, to Nazareth. And it says in verse 44 that they're with their extended family and they're with many acquaintances. And at the end of that first day, that first 20 to 25 miles, when the caravan had circled the wagons, if you will, uh, Joseph and Mary uh, realized that Jesus is not in their group. He's not in their caravan. And I know it's hard for us to imagine how this could possibly happen, but the commentators uh, point out there's a lot going on here. There's multiple factors. We should resist casting blame on anyone. First, verse 43, Jesus intentionally stayed behind. Joseph and Mary had other younger children. Just like us, when they would leave a public place, they would primarily, I'm sure, worry about the younger kids, and they would assume that the older kids knew the drill and would tag along. Also, it was customary for the women to travel ahead of the men, and they would take the children with them, and the men would come at the rear from a distance and make sure that everything was going along okay. And Mary could have been thinking, Jesus is 12 now. Joseph could have been thinking, Jesus is only 12. 
Finally, Joseph and Mary lived life in a communal way that we can't even imagine. Even if they knew that Jesus was not with the other, they, they assumed that Jesus was safe and that he was in the dozens, if not hundreds of people traveling together. Verse 45, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. In verses 46 and 47, Luke tells us why Jesus stayed behind and what he was doing. When Joseph and Mary finally found him, he, he was in the temple. He was sitting at the feet of the temple teachers. He was in dialogue about God and God's ways and God's saving works in history. Jesus was increasing in wisdom by being around God, God's word, and God's teachers. There's this really cool progression in verses 46 and 47. Uh, look there if you would. I, I don't want us to lose this because it might get lost in our translations. In verse 46, Jesus first sat and listened. He second asked questions when he was confused. Third, verse 47, he would understand the teacher's answers to his questions. And fourth, he would answer. It's just simply the word reply. And in his reply, he would show that he understood and he would take the conversation to a whole new level. So this word for understanding, this word means when two things join together or run together. It's used of when two rivers become one. Jesus would take what he already knew he would take the answer to a question that he legitimately had. He would put the two together, and in his reply, he would be astounding to the crowd. Verses 40, 47, and 52, they tell us that Jesus wasn't born with all the answers. That he increased in wisdom this way, through this dialogue, through this Q&A, through this humility. Evidently, verse 47, Jesus drew a crowd and literally they were displaced. They were put out of position. They were beside themselves. They were amazed at this kid's appetite for God, for God's word, and for God's wisdom. Evidently, seven or eight days of Sunday school wasn't enough for Jesus. Now, there's some debate as to when the three days mentioned in verse 46 started. Uh, did the three days begin when Mary and Joseph left Jerusalem or did the three days begin when they got back uh, two days later? I think if you just read 45 and 46 in order, uh, you see that of his own will and of his own choice, Jesus went to the temple five extra days. One day for his parents to travel away, one day for them to travel back, three days of searching all over Jerusalem and they finally find him in the temple. So now, let's think about the beautiful life of Jesus. What temptations were likely present before Jesus' exchange with Mary in the next verses? What would we have done at 12 years of age? What would we do now? Did we have and do we have this insatiable appetite for God and for his word and for his ways and for his story of salvation? Do we sit, let alone did we sit at the feet of God's word and at the feet of God's teaching through his teachers and did we wrestle with our questions on a whole nother level for at least a day and maybe three, Mary and Joseph didn't look in the temple for Jesus. Why? 12-year-old boys who create distance with their parents do not go to Sunday school. As young people in and around puberty, with three to five unsupervised days, where would we have gone? Where would we go now? I know where I went. It wasn't Sunday school. You get my point? The author of Hebrew invites us to look at this story in Jesus' life from yet another angle. 
He's not just the world's greatest teacher, uh, growing in wisdom and understanding. He's not just the example of righteous and holy living, pursuing God. He is the victor who was tempted just like us, yet without sin. Next, what about during the exchange between Mary and Jesus? And this is going to get fascinating. What temptations were likely present here? Verse 48. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And we can't know exactly why they were astonished, but we can know that Joseph didn't speak and Mary did. Son, why have you treated us so? Not, son, we missed you. Not, son, we're so glad to see you alive. Not, son, we were worried sick. We love you so much. But look at the inconvenience you've been to our lives. Behold, look, your father and I, I can't tell you how many times I heard that. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. You've been here having all this fun. We've been worried sick. You should be ashamed of yourself. Mary does what I tend to do when I get heated or when I get embarrassed. She wants other people to know all the good she has done, and she wants to exaggerate the pain of her experience. The phrase great distress is the strongest Greek word available for agony. Luke only uses it in one other place in his entire gospel. He, he uses it of a man in chapter 16 in the fires of hell. What might Jesus be tempted with here? Mary is focused on herself and not her son. Mary sees all of this as Jesus' fault. Mary tries to shame and control him in front of the whole crowd. What did I do as a 12-year-old? What would I do now? It seems that some of us would acquiesce. We would sort of forget our dignity. We would sort of agree with mom and just keep the peace and have her approval and move on. Some of us do that at 40. Some of us would bow up and rebel and yell louder and increase the drama. What does Jesus do? He's strong enough to engage her in conversation, but he's respectful enough to ask her an honest question. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? He defends himself without being defensive. He respects Mary with honesty, tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Would you have dropped your chin? Would you have clenched your jaw? I love the strength of this 12-year-old boy, confident in who he is, but I love the tenderness and the honesty in this boy, willing to ask questions, willing to learn. What about after the exchange between Mary and Jesus? Verse 50, Mary and Joseph don't fight back. They don't repent. They're just confused. And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. Let's go at this one this way. In your life, who all does the Bible direct you to and command you to and lead you to submit to? Who all does the Bible ask you to follow the leadership of, to go with them wherever they go, unless they want to take you into a place of direct disobedience against God's clear command in Scripture? 
All of us are called to submit to the civil authorities God has sovereignly put in place. All of us are called to submit to the elders, the pastors, the leaders of the church. Uh, The Bible obviously tells children to obey and submit to their parents. Uh, We have that here in our text. And regardless of what we think about it, the Bible tells wives to submit to their husbands. And I love the way Luke has crafted this story. Jesus in verse 47 has amazing understanding. Mary and Joseph in verse 50 do not understand. They cannot put the two things together. Jesus does not say, and this is where you'll have to think about your own relationships and your own heart. He does not say, when you figure it out, I'll follow you. He does not say, when you're as mature as me or when you're as mature as so-and-so, I'll submit to you. He doesn't say, when you're wise and when you're worth following, I'll submit to your leadership. Elder to elder, men to elders, wives to husbands, citizens to the president, children to parents. He went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Tempted in every way means that he was tempted in these ways, just as we are, yet without sin. Lastly, tempted on his way to the cross. So we started our our sermon thinking from a macro perspective uh, on the entirety of Jesus's life. And then in our second point, we focused in on this episode of Jesus's life when he's 12 years old. And now I want to go back out and zoom out again and think across the span of his life. And I'm doing this because this is what Luke does in our text. Look at verse 40, look at verse 52. At the introduction to our text, at the conclusion of our text, Luke does this out in out. In verse 40, Luke writes about the development and the growth of Jesus from birth through his childhood to the age of 12. In verse 52, Luke writes about the development and the increase of Jesus from age 12 to age 30, which is the next age he gives to Jesus in chapter 13, or chapter 3, excuse me. But look at what Luke says of Jesus in both 40 and 52. 40, the favor, the approval, the liking of God was upon him. Verse 52, he grew in favor or approval or liking with God. So what Luke is saying is he's saying Jesus' entire life was pleasing to God. And he says, here's an example of why he was pleasing to God when he was 12 years old. And so if you look at verse 49, you can see the controlling paradigm for Jesus' life that made him so pleasing to God. Jesus asks Mary, didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? There's actually no Greek word for house in the text. What what he says is he said, didn't you know I had to be about or in my father? Jesus is saying, in other words, my heavenly father told me to stay here at the temple. Jesus says about his life in John, category blowing realities to which I long for. He says, I only do what the Father is doing. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only say what the Father tells me to say. He just says to Mary, I must be about my Father. I had to be doing my Father's business, my Father's agenda. So this word for must, this word have to, necessity, it's a word that comes out of Jesus's mouth in Luke all the time. Jesus repeatedly says, I must do this. I must do that. He is showing that in his life and in his choices and where he goes and what he says, he is following a plan. 
And Jesus is going to say, I must preach here, or I must go to the city, or I must go to this house. But most often in Luke, more than you would think, Jesus uses this word for necessity when he speaks of his path and his way to the cross. I'll give you a few examples. Chapter 9, verse 22. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes. And he must be killed and on the third day be raised. Chapter 2, verse 37, for I tell you that the scriptures must be fulfilled in me. And he, and he quotes Isaiah, and he was numbered with the transgressors. In chapter 24, 26, after uh, his death and resurrection, he says, was it not necessary? Was, was it not a must that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Listen, the father liked Jesus, verses 40 and 52, because Jesus always did what the father said. Jesus always followed the Father's plan, even when the plan took him to his death on the cross. If you're new to the Bible, if you're new to the the one story across the Bible, it is this, that we are tempted in every way as Jesus was, yet we sin. That Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. And even still, Jesus' entire life is one long trip to the cross. It's one long trip to the place where he will die for us. He will take our sin upon himself. He will, in exchange, give us his beautiful life, his wonderful record, his absolute righteousness. And with it, the favor and the liking, the acceptance, the approval, the smile of God. I've told this illustration before. I can't think of a better one. I'm going to tell it again. My oldest daughter, Maddie, was two years old, and my second daughter, Riley, was six months. Trisha, for some reason, unbeknownst to me still, uh, left me in charge of the two and their three-year-old cousin, Bodie. I was not doing well. Uh, Riley was tired, and she was hungry, and she was at that stage where a child's trying to learn how to take a bottle. And I was holding her, and I was walking around the living room with her. I was doing everything I could to make her happy. And so Maddie and Bodie were doing what they had been for hours, which is watching television. And um, I think Dora or Diego had the dumb idea of them getting up and not being sedated, looking at the television. And so they got up and uh, they started to spin around uh, and they they just began to spin themselves into this sort of dizzy oblivion. And of course they were, as kids do, they're giggling with delight. So Maddie and Bodie are are, are having a great time. And and the living room floor in our old house, which is for sale if you want to buy an old house that has this one problem. the floor slopes severely. And when I mean severely, I mean like bowling balls would like crash through walls at the other side. Uh, it slopes severely from the north to the south, uh, from the front uh, to the back. And so as they would spin, they would tumble and fall to the south and their, their falls were getting more drastic and more dangerous. And so finally I had enough and I put my foot down and I said, Bodie and Maddie, that's it. No more spinning. I want you to stop right now. So Bodie stopped. Uh, Maddie, who I've asked permission to tell this story, uh, saw me handcuffed by Riley, and, and she decided to just give it one more twirl. Pretty quickly, it became obvious that, 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 that okay, I guess I would say it became obvious to Bodie and myself that, that Maddie, uh, that this twirl was not going to end well, that we were headed straight for disaster and pain. And so Maddie begins to wobble, and she begins to pick up speed, and she gets to head downhill, and she's heading directly for the entertainment center cabinet. Now, I know for some of you younger than me, you think all TVs hang on walls, okay? 
there used to be a kind of TV that you'd have to buy a cabinet for, okay? And in that cabinet, we didn't have, like, you know, Wi-Fi that would put movies on our TV. We had these big boxes that we put tapes in. And there was all kinds of things in that cabinet. And, and it became obvious to me that she was headed right for it. In a split second, in a split second decision, Bodhi, obedient Bodhi, steps in front of her, absorbs her momentum, the back of her head slams into Bodhi's face, his nose begins to bleed, his head fling, is flung back, slams against uh, the entertainment center, and knot develops on the back of his head almost instantaneously, and he's down on the ground crying. That's the gospel. That's the one storyline of the Bible. Bodhi obeys, Maddie disobeys. Bodhi intervenes at great sacrificial cost. Maddie is on the ground laughing. Bodhi is on the ground crying. Jesus, tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, dies into the agonies of hell. Us, tempted in every way, often sinning, die into peace, into the heaven that is the Father's love. Let's pray. Jesus, I come to you and I confess to you that I have been a sinful man all my years. I come to you and I thank you that you treated Mary this way because you treated her with obedience and respect and submission as you should when I treated my mother with disobedience, disrespect, and willfulness. I praise you, Jesus, that you fulfilled the commandment to honor your mother and I did not and you died for me on the cross. Jesus, I praise you that beyond this, all the sins of my life, you wrestled with that temptation. You took it head on. You chose righteousness. You chose the Father's path all the way to the cross. I thank you that there is so much forgiveness and so much freedom and so much hope and so much joy and so much power in this truth. Holy Spirit, would you come and free us from trying to win the love of God? Would you come and free us from trying to create our own righteousness? Would you come and free us from trying to make God happy with us? Would you, would you come and deliver us from our own attempts at righteousness? Jesus, would you be the end of all our attempts at gaining life? And would you be the beginning of our life by faith? We stand in a moment to worship you. We pray that you would receive our worship, that you would empower our worship, that our worship would send us from this place to live 